and uh, we're the Oxfordshire branch of the British Science Association, and we run sidebars here once a month at the pub. Uh, if you want to find out more about who we are and what we do, you can go to our website, oxfordsidebar.com. And tonight, it's a great pleasure to introduce our speaker, uh, Dr. Kira McCabe. And Kira runs a research group at the University of Reading, where she's the Associate Professor of uh, Neurosciences, and she runs the Neuroimaging Award group. Kira's very busy running her group. Uh, she also receives a lot of awards and accolades for her work, including this month, she's received an award from the British Association of Psychopharmacology. She is also on the uh, council, and has been re-elected on the council again. Here is also no stranger to public engagement. Based on everything from TV, radio, print, including this morning, she was a bit inundated at the last minute, and we appreciate it. She took some time out to do a radio interview, and she had some other requests from the BBC and also for TV. So obviously, it's a very um, popular topic, and uh, so it's great to have Kira. And as you know, we've got some chocolates about, and that's to help activate your brain's reward system. And Kira's going to talk about chocolate and the neurobiology of depression. Uh, so firstly, uh, thank you very much for the introduction and the opportunity to come and talk about some of our work here tonight. So as Amanda mentioned, yes, I run the Neuroimaging of Reward Group, so you can find us on Twitter under NRG, um, and we have a Facebook and stuff as well, so you can see, uh, get up to date uh, information about some of the studies that we're currently running at the minute. So hopefully by the end of this evening, uh, you go away with three things. I'm hoping that you go away knowing a little bit more about how we can measure the brain's reward response, how that's important for studying psychiatric disorders like depression, and how we can use this type of information to learn a little bit more about the psychological and pharmacological treatments that we have for disorders like depression. So um, when I say how we measure the, the reward response or the brain's response to reward, what exactly do I mean by that? So if you think about it, most of our decisions and our behaviors in our environment are guided by rewards and punishers. So for example, if you're hungry and you want to go and get some food, the food is satisfying and pleasurable, and we call that a reward or rewarding experience. Similarly, if you go and you um, say you're out foraging for food, you're an animal and you get like stung by bees trying to get uh, fruit and things, then that's a punisher. And that's something that makes you not repeat that behavior. So that's an aversive or unpleasant experience. And these rewards and punishers are very important for our survival, obviously, but they're also very important for, um, if you think about humans, making sensible decisions and how our behavior is guided. So what do we know so far about the biology of reward? Um, well, we know quite a lot from the animal literature. So I think it was about 1950s, they started to look at how animals would self-administer electric uh, stimulation to the brain into reward centers, or what we, we came to believe as the reward centers of the brain, to the point where they would even forgo food um, for this electrical stimulation. And so leading on from the 50s, we know a lot now about the neurobiology of reward in animals. Um, a lot of the drive for this has also been because of the huge problem that us humans have with drug addiction. So of course we love drugs and we love the way that makes us feel, so there's been, and of course then that leads to massive problems, especially in the US. So the USA drove an enormous amount of work into the neurobiology of addiction. And this goes hand in hand with teaching us about the neurobiology of reward. 
So it's these reward systems that we understand better from the animal literature. We now have mapped out for us the neural pathways. We pretty much know the neurotransmitters that are involved in rewards. So for example, we've probably all heard of dopamine. It's a very sexy neurotransmitter. It's always in the newspapers. And um, it's a neurotransmitter that's been found to be um, released when, for example, you take cocaine. And we, can do, we know this from PET studies. PET are, are um, a type of imaging that, are, that is used both in animals and humans now that can actually um, quantify the amount of dopamine that's released in response to either a food or a drug of choice, uh, uh, say cocaine, for example. So that's how we know these particular neurotransmitters, these chemical signals in the brain, or chemical transporters in the brain, um, that, are, that are involved in reward processing. So what do we do with this information? So now that we know um, how, the brain, or how the reward system works in animals, the biology of reward in animals, we can pretty much think of the neurotransmitters that are involved, then we can use this type of information to, to teach us a little bit about psychiatric problems. So for example, during my PhD, we worked with animals that were working for food, and then we used this as a model for anxiety. And how we did that is when an animal's working for food and he expects to always get the food, that's great. But when you take the food away, they get a bit cheesed off and they get a bit stressed. And this is based on a previous model that was by Jeffrey Gray here at Oxford called the Frustrative Non-Reward Model. And we use this um, to basically induce anxiety in the animal. So the animal's working for reward, you take it away, they get paid off, and then you give them an anxiolytic or an anti-anxiety drug and you kind of see if it works to calm them down. On top of that, this is now called a model, a model that we can use to test novel anxiolytic or anti-anxiety drugs. We then worked in collaboration at the time with Mark Sharp and Dome and we tried to develop new anti-anxiety treatments. So again, the animal's working for food, you make them a bit annoyed because you take the food away and then you test on it how new drugs compare with the current anxiolytics that we have. The problem with the current anxiolytics or anti-anxiety drugs is that they can be a bit addictive themselves. So we're always looking for new treatments. The current treatments aren't so great. Moving from there, then um, I actually went to America and started working with non-human primates. And this time we were also interested in the reward response still, but in relation to drug addiction. So this is some of the work that I, I mentioned previously. So we know a lot about uh, the brain's response in, in drug addiction, mostly through the animals. And we looked at how different uh, monkeys, when allowed to self-administer cocaine, would actually take quite a lot of cocaine to the point where they would no longer eat. So they were getting a lot of reward from this. And then once we had them established as this model of reward processing, then we could start to look at the effects of drugs that could block that craving. Drugs that could switch their behavior back from the cocaine back onto food. And again, this is a way that you're using um, reward processing in an animal to try and think about how we can help psychiatric disorders or in fact disorders of drug addiction. So with that information, um, I actually then moved to experiment in psychology in Oxford and wanted to start thinking about how we could start to understand reward processing though in the human brain. Because up until this point, nearly everything has been done in animals. And that's all very well. But when you start to think about anxiety and making an animal not really want 
or, or I mean, get a bit annoyed because he doesn't get food. Is that really the same as human anxiety? I mean, the animal models that we have, are they really the same as the psychiatric disorders? Not perfect. So ideally what you want to do is you want to look at how we can model this type of reward processing or get models of stress and anxiety or even depression in humans. And so when I moved to psychology at Oxford University, that was some of the things that I was starting to be interested in. How can we measure reward in the human brain? And so what we did um, at this point as well, it had been around now for about 10 years, was fMRI. So this is functional magnetic resonance imaging. And uh, basically, for those of you, I'm sure there's very few of you who don't know what that is here, neither are in Oxford, but basically, it's a way of measuring how parts of the brain seem to get activated when they're involved in a task. So the assumption is when you're involved in doing something, so say there's pictures flashing in front of your face, parts of the brain that are involved in responding to that need more energy. And more energy is carried in the blood through oxygen in the blood. And then fMRI basically just measures the blood flow and the oxygenation of the blood. So using this new technique, um, it, about 10 years old at the time, we were able to start to look inside the human brain and what do they do when they, how does that brain look like when it's experiencing reward? And so at this point, what did we do? We were interested in rewards, but we didn't want to give people cocaine. So what's the next best thing? Chocolate. So we thought, um, let's give people chocolate and see what happens. So we developed a model, um, this was about 2006-2007, where we could give people chocolate in the scanner. So we give them liquid chocolate, and we pump it through a tube, and then they taste it in the scanner, and we show them pictures of lovely chocolate, and we can look at how the brain activates for reward in the human this time, okay? And what was really interesting is that you can find differences in what are considered reward centers in the brain. So parts of the, the ventral striatum that you may have heard of, the prefrontal cortex, parts of the brain that are heavily innervated by dopamine, this, this neurotransmitter that's kind of famous for reward. Of course, the story's not as simple as that, but at least for us, it's kind of exciting to say, well, look, we can, we can actually measure reward responding in the human brain. And at that time, um, we did a study that actually got, I think the, the repercussions of that study are still following me around. Uh, we did a study on chocolate cravers, and um, it was the first study actually to ever show that uh, people who say they really desire or really crave food have bigger activations to reward in their brain. And from that, um, there was uh, what Amanda was saying, lots of media attention. It's not me, it's the chocolate. It's always the chocolate. They just say, we're not interested in the brain, just tell us about chocolate. Um, is it as addictive as cocaine? I get that all the time. It's not. Um, so, it's not the same at all. So if you don't know, cocaine, I think, affects your, your neurotransmitters about 400 fold as to what a bar of chocolate can do for you. So it's a massive difference in, in between like drugs of addiction and uh, food rewards, which is another amazing debate that we could have some other night about obesity and, and food addiction and whether there's such a thing. But anywho, so what happened then? We went to, where did I go then? Uh, did you get some cooking? That's right, that's right, we get people chocolate, that's right. And, um, and then we figured out that this was a robust me measure of activating the reward system. And what we found with that study that was kind of cool is that people who said that they really, really love chocolate had a bigger response in the reward centers to people who don't. 
And I know that might sound really obvious, and what that's common sense, right? But like I said, it had never been shown that you could actually measure a biological difference in the brain in people who said they craved the food. So, so it was kind of cool that not only did you have what's called a subjective measure, so when you ask somebody how much do you like something, pretty much all the research today in reward is in humans is how much do you like it, like a subjective response. But this was a biological response. This was a difference in the brain's response. And leading on from that, then we thought, okay, this seems to be a cool way that we can activate the brain's reward response that might be useful to, again, feedback for disorders, psychiatric disorders. So I'll have a drink now. Everybody can have a drink. Okay. <laughs> drink time. And uh, yeah, so then from there, it was interesting to try and use this model to, uh, to understand a little bit more about psychiatry. So from there, I moved to psychiatry department in Oxford, and we wanted to understand disorders, a bit like what I did in my PhD, anxiety, um, how reward processing might be funny in depression. So as you may already know, depression is characterized by low mood and sadness, but there's also the second of the two main diagnostic criteria for depression, which is anhedonia. Anhedonia is the inability to experience pleasure and reward once you become depressed. And it's one of the main features of depression. And it's very interesting for us to study for two reasons. Uh, the first reason is it's been suggested as a possible biomarker for depression. And what that means is it's a risk factor. It's something that you could detect in somebody before they get ill. And the reason for this is that there's literature out there showing that anhedonia, this inability to experience pleasure, this lack of motivation, seems to hang around even when people are recovered from depression. So that sort of fits the criteria of a biomarker. Uh, for people who are not really sciencey, a good example of a biomarker is um, high blood pressure. So high blood pressure is a really well-known biomarker for heart disease. So again, once people who have high blood pressure, it's kind of like an indicator of risk and if you can tackle the high blood pressure, you might reduce that person's vulnerability to experience a heart attack. So that's what we're looking for in psychiatry and psychology. We're looking for biomarkers, really. We're looking for vulnerability risk factors. What is it that makes somebody go on to experience a disorder and not somebody else? Is it something tangible, something biological? And if so, can we target it then? Can we then look uh, towards mod moderating either our psychological or our pharmacological treatments so that these people don't unfortunately have to experience any further episodes of depression? So it's about prevention. So biomarker prevention, that's kind of why we're looking for them. The other reason we're interested in anhedonia is that anhedonia doesn't respond very well to current antidepressant treatments. And again, why is this? Well, we don't really know, but possibly it could be because um, the, the current treatments focus on one aspect of your depression and not all the aspects of your depression. So that's another reason, and I'll come back to that a little bit um, about some of the studies that we're doing in relation to antidepressant treatment and, um, and uh, how we can use chocolate to understand antidepressant treatment. So thinking first of all about anhedonia and about reward processing and why um, that could be something that's a positive biomarker, something that we could detect that we could then develop treatments to target. So one of the first studies that we did in psychiatry was to think about, okay, so what's, who are at risk of depression? There's about five or six 
really well-known risk factors. So for example, if you've got a parental depression, you're about 10 to 40% more likely to have a depression yourself. If you have a previous episode of depression, you're at a high risk. I think it's the highest risk of having future episodes of depression. So again, you might think, oh, okay, again, that, that's okay, that makes a lot of sense. Well, not really. There's lots of disorders and diseases that if you get it once, you're at no increased risk of getting it again. So the problem there with recovery depression or having had depression in the past is you are at high risk for future episodes. So we need to find out, is there something tangible, biological in those people that we can detect so that, again, we can target that or treat that to prevent them going on to experience future episodes of depression. We're okay now, but, well, met all the criteria for recovery, and, again, we gave them chocolate. So we put them in the scanner, and we matched them, age and gender matched them with a group of controls. We never had depression in the past. And when we asked them, again, subjectively, how much do you like chocolate, how much do you want it, how much do you eat, statistically no difference between any of the groups. But when you looked inside the brain of people who used to have depression, they had a reduced response to reward. So they didn't seem to respond biologically in the same fashion to people who have never had depression. And we thought, well, this is really interesting. This is possibly ticking a box on the line towards a biomarker or a trait marker for depression. Now, there's a problem with that study, a massive problem with that study, even though, in my defence, it was the first step. But still, there's a huge problem. Can anybody think of it while I have a drink? <laughs> it's a brilliant idea and I can have a drink. This is a massive one. <laughs> can anybody think why that could be a problem? Were those who had experienced depression taking antidepressants? Oh, yeah, sorry. So the lady said... Uh, people who have experienced depression in the past would have been taking antidepressants, which is a really good point. And, it, and we'll come to that later in the talk about the effects of antidepressants on your brain. Would people who are likely to experience depression be less, uh, get less pleasure in the first place, even before they've had depression? Very good question. And that's kind of the crux of what I'm getting at. Yeah, we don't know. So basically... Could it be that the people who had depression in the past had reduced response to rewards because, because they had depression in the past? So it's this thing about chicken and egg. You know, it's kind of like, is it a scar of the illness? So if you've had depression, does your reward system go down? Or is it because your reward system is down that you're more likely to get depression? And we couldn't tell from that study. Very good. So what we did next is then we thought, right, well then what do we do? How do we answer that? Okay. Well, let's look at another risk group. Let's look at a bunch of people who are at risk of depression, but who have not yet experienced depression. And then we can rule that out. So the next study that we did is we got a group of young people with family history of depression. So between the ages of 16 and 21, and they had a parent with depression. Um, so we know they're, they're statistically at a higher chance of experiencing depression but no personal experience. And similarly, we put them into the scanner, we fed them chocolate, and we gave them lovely pictures of chocolate, and uh, we find again that there was this difference in how they responded to reward. And subjectively, they liked chocolate just as much, they ate just as much chocolate, um, so there was no subjective difference. And again, at this point, you know, some of the scientists in the audience will probably ask me later, so I'll get it in now. Um, why does that well that doesn't mean anything then if the if behaviorally they didn't experience a behavioral difference do you see what I mean 
if they didn't feel different, then what's the point of the fMRI? We don't need it, right? And you're right, you would be right to ask that. But we think that because we can detect these biolog biological differences before, during, and after depression, then it's very probable that they might predict onset of depression. So that's something that we're working on at the minute. Does that make sense? Yeah. So Matigree's kind of old and things might have moved on a bit since then, but um, one of the things I do know is the fact that we consider medical practitioners relatively poor at discriminating between exogenous and endogenous depression. And couldn't that lock up, assuming they still yes. exist and you still think about them, couldn't that lock up the experience yes. as well? Yes. So again, I, I kind of come to this near the end, but you're absolutely right. So at the, at the minute, Everybody's treated like there's one type of depression, and um, the tr there's really blanket treatments as well. We only have one type of treatment that's pharmacological. The psychological treatments are pretty similar, um, and the depressions themselves are considered similar. And of course, there's got to be subtypes, and there's got to be differences perhaps in age of onset of depression, or what triggered your depression, all these kind of things. And so, yeah, we haven't got that far yet, but there are. Um, Many research groups now looking at subtypes of depression and starting to talk about uh, is there a difference in, in the biology or even your subjective experience of situations across different types of depression. Yeah, totally. So that's another just problem that we have. And when I come to the end, you'll see why we think that we might be able to start doing that with what we're doing, starting to subtype depression. Any questions or comments now at the minute? Yeah. Um, would it not be an idea to gather some baseline data by sending out questionnaires to screen people for anhedonia yeah. and then follow them up to see whether they develop depression yeah. or not? Yeah. 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 So again, perfect longitudinal studies. Um, we are in the process of trying to get funding to do longitudinal studies of that nature. But what we're interested so we know for example on on just regular questionnaires like the BDI effect depression inventory, um, questionnaires that, that um, screen for depression, that if you score high in those that you probably will or you have a more you're at risk of future episodes of depression. So we already know that and we know that um, if you ex you yeah there's a lot of data already to say that if you experience these types of uh, lack of reward and that kind of thing that you're more likely to go on to probably experience depression. But what we want to know is um, are there biological targets within that? And I don't know of any studies that have been done yet longitudinally for fMRI, for example. Yeah. Or which I'm just saying is a biological way of measuring it rather than just a questionnaire. Yeah. So it's something we definitely want to do. Yeah. Now, somebody will have to remind me where I was. No so idea just talked about, you just talked about the structure of your study and what could be wrong with it. Yes, that's right. Okay, good. Yes, good. Okay, put that down again. I don't remember. Yes, so then the next study we did was family history. And what we find is that young people who have a family history of depression, even though they've no personal experience of depression, still have this difference in reward. A reduced response to reward, even though subjectively they still like chocolate, net chocolate, and all that. So that was all very well. And again, we were ticking another box and we were saying, yes, this reward response, giving people chocolate, this is a way to measure a possible biomarker for depression. This is great. But of course, with everything, this also had a problem with this study. And the problem with this study 
is that uh, there was another study by Gottlieb et al, and uh, they also looked at young people with depression, or sorry, uh, with a family history of depression, and they found that there was a specific deficit in what's called the ventral striatum, a part of the brain that's quite specifically dopamine innervated, and supposed to be one of the hot spots in the reward center. Um, I'm less and less interested in that as I go on, but anyway, for now, that was the idea that this they found this key difference in a, in a part of the brain involved in reward in these young people with a family history. We didn't. We found parts of the anterior cingulate, prefrontal cortex, parts of the brain that are more involved with executive control, decision making, okay? And the way we described our results was that, okay, so if young people have a problem in responding to reward in these parts of the brain, maybe that means they've got a problem, back to what I said at the beginning, a problem with using feedback from the environment, a problem with uh, responding to positive information, which would lead then to making poor decisions, which would lead to another risk factor, well-known risk factor for depression, which is negative life events. And so that's how we described our results. But it was always in the back of our head. I mean, how come Gottlieb, though? How did he get it? You know, he got this difference in the ventral stratum that we didn't get. On closer inspection, the difference between the studies was that we selected people who were 16 to 21. They had 14 to, say, 18, something like that. So they had a younger sample. And it's very possible. What what, what could be the answer here? What could be? Anybody? Yes, what else? Yes, what else? Think about what we did. So we selected young people who were at risk but had no personal experience of depression. Yes, what else? Yeah, very good, but what else? Yes, we'll have that over here. Very good, yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I mean, it's only now people are really looking at the adolescent brain. Only now are we starting to realise actually the particular tasks we have, the way we measure the brain in adolescents and adults might not, you know, marry up exactly. So that's again another whole talk. But what else could it be? So these are young people, fourteen to twenty, fourteen to say eighteen, had a particular difference in the response to reward. We selected 16 to 21, and to be honest, most of them were probably 18 to 21, because it's harder to get young people in your sample. Yes, so life events and that kind of thing, yes, but think about what we were doing. We were selecting people who had never had depression. So they were at risk, but they never had depression. Was representative of the population? Yes. God, you're very good. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's not, it's not something that's so like they need less children at that age, is it? No. <laughs> <laughs> Unlikely. <laughs> <laughs> no. They're at risk and they're all closer to becoming depressed. Closer, closer. Yes. They're resilient. You're basically selecting out a very special sample. Now, I'm not saying this is what we've done, but it's a possibility. So it's possible, because we were looking for people who had a, or a, a vulnerability, but we made sure that they didn't actually experience depression. So we've selected a sample that were highly resilient. We selected a sample that were actually worth looking at, but for a totally different reason. We were selecting out a sample that was possibly at risk, but for some reason didn't get depressed. Yeah? So... 
that's probably why we got a different result from this other group who went in for the younger ones because they got them before they had passed that age. Yeah. So again, we had a problem. So this is research, you know, it's just one thing after the other. But what we're doing now at now I'm at the University of Reading, so what we're doing now is we are studying adolescents. Um, so we've reduced our age to try and get around these problems. So we've just we've finished one study and we're just recruiting for the second. So the first study we did is we selected young people between the ages of 13 and 21 to try and match these other groups with the other results in the other parts of the world. And we're looking at people, we've actually selected young people, not with a family history, but who score, so we're trying to hit uh, something with one stone. What is it, two birds, one stone, is that the same? So basically, in this one study, we're trying to hit two problems. One was that, that I mentioned earlier, if the person doesn't have any actual feelings of depression, or isn't actually feeling low, then how do we know that our brain responses to reward are meaningful? So this time we're selecting young people who do actually score highly on a depression questionnaire. They're not depressed, they're not clinically depressed. Um, I'm going through the floor. Um, but <laughs> just sunk. But what we're, so we're selecting those guys, but we're also um, getting them younger, so we're making sure that we're not selecting a sample that are highly resilient or anything like that. So, so that's what we're doing right now. We've got, well, we finished that study, and yeah, we find that there is differences in how they respond to reward, and that it does seem to correlate with their experiences. So we're getting correlations between their reward response in the brain and how they feel as well, which is a nice add to what we've done already. And then the, the study that we're just recruiting for just now, we've just uh, started scanning a few people, are actually uh, clinically depressed young people. So uh, again, the same age group. And we want to see, again, is there a relationship between how their brain's responding to reward, their physical symptoms of anhedonia, how they express they have anhedonia or not. That'll also be really interesting. What is the differences? I mean maybe, you know, it's not anhedonia at all, and it's just that everybody who's depressed has this difference in how they respond to both reward and unpleasant things, and there's no relationship with um, that symptom. So that's something that we can look at in the new study. So that's what we're doing currently. And hopefully we'll be able to answer some of those questions. So from there, um, we're also very much interested in the treatments for depression. So as I mentioned before, we're interested in anhedonia as a possible biomarker. So that's looking at whether people who are young with depression um, or people who are at risk with depression have this biological difference that we can detect so that, it, and then eventually, obviously, we want to do longitudinal studies, follow those people, see what sort of brain differences correlates with onset of depression, what type of depression in the future. And that has to be done, it hasn't been done, but that's the kind of thing that we would like to do. But we're also interested in why the current pharmacological treatments don't seem to work for depression. Now, that's a big ask, try and understand that. Currently, about a third of patients uh, who receive psych uh, antidepressant medications respond to their first medication. That's pretty bad, right? We don't really have that in lots of different areas of medicine. So when people are depressed, they go in, unfortunately, they don't seem to respond very well to their treatment. And we want to know why, right? Now, clinicians report and patients that there seems to be a relationship between the type of antidepressant that you get and whether or not it treats all your symptoms. And if you remember what I said at the beginning, some of the symptoms are sadness and low mood, 
as we all think about when we think about depression, but there's also this lack of reward, this lack of motivation, the inability to experience pleasure. And patients and clinicians both report that when they're on certain serotonergic medications, that they don't feel maybe sad anymore, but they don't feel happy. I mean, they don't feel positive, they don't feel motivated to do anything. And is that because maybe the drug itself isn't really modulating reward responses? Is it that serotonergic drugs, which is your classic antidepressants today, commonly used SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, most commonly used antidepressant, are obviously focusing on this neurotransmitter serotonin. And what I was talking about before with anhedonia, it's reward and more like maybe dopamine or different types of neurotransmitters. So it's possible that the current treatments that we have are targeting specific aspects of depression and not all the features of depression. And so that we have, we wanted to know, I wonder how, if we have a model by using chocolate, we can look at the brain's response to reward in humans, can we look at the effects of antidepressant treatments on that brain response? And so that's what we did. So we took, um, I don't know how many, like 20 people, and we gave them seven days. These are healthy people, not depressed patients. And the reason for that is we already know there's a lot of changes happening in the brain when you're depressed. Possibly also you, your own medication, or you've had psychological treatment, you probably have comorbidities, lots of other disorder, maybe a bit of anxiety. So we, we wanted to just understand the drug itself. What is the drug doing? And the first step in that process is to look at the drug in the, in the brain that has never experienced depression. And so that's what we did. We took a bunch of people who've never had depression, healthy control as we call them, and we gave them seven days treatment with the typically used citalopram, which is a SSRI, Selective Serotonergic Reuptake Inhibitor. And in the scanner, we were looking at how their brains respond to chocolate, tastes and pictures, but also how they respond to negative information. Because again, I haven't much talked about this tonight because my research is mostly interested in reward, but there's a wealth of literature looking at how in depression it seems to be both categorised uh, by processing of negative information and also like a rumination or an over-focus on negative information. Okay, So it's well known that, for example, parts of the brain that are involved in fear and negative processing like the amygdala are overactive in depression. So in our studies, we're, we look at both reward with chocolate, but we also give an unpleasant drink. And then we can also see how the brain's maybe overactive to negative things. So we look at reduced reward in depression and overactivity of negative inf to negative information. And with, yes, go ahead. Why you only gave the drug for seven days? Yeah. I'm pretty sure it normally takes like three weeks to a month, even longer, for it actually to have any effect. Yes. In yes. Yeah. Sure. Was there something else? No. Okay. Yeah. Very good question. So um, there's good reasons for that. So they say that around seven days you have no side effects. So these drugs themselves can make you feel a bit sick, maybe even make you feel a wee bit anxious in the first day or two. So seven days, usually all the side effects subside, so that's good. So you know that whatever you're looking at in the brain isn't caused by the side effects. Also, uh, the lab that I was working in at Oxford in Psychiatry at the time had a number of studies looking at single doses of antidepressants, seven-day treatments, three weeks, four weeks, whatever. And they've uh, found that basically there is a biological difference in the brain. It starts to affect your brain even with a single dose. So what you're reporting is about how patients start to feel better after, say, three or four weeks. 
but mechanistically and chemically, the brains have, or sorry, the drugs have an effect immediately, and that's what we're interested in. Uh, because these people aren't unwell, remember, they're not depressed. So there's no, we don't need to wait four weeks till they start to feel better. They're already okay. We're looking at the mechanism of how the drugs interact with neurotransmitters and how that affects reward. But you're right, if we were doing this in a clinical sample, we would, of course, scan them before and maybe after six weeks of treatment so that we allow the drug to have its effect on mood and then look at how the biology, the brain, and the mood correlate with each other. So you're dead right. So that's why we look at seven days. Uh, so it gets past the side effects problem, and it also is in healthy people, and we know that it has a, a mechanistic effect at seven days. And what we find was really interesting. So we find that, as you might expect, when the person was in the scanner and they saw pictures of unpleasant foods and they tasted unpleasant things, it wasn't very nice, the citalopram kind of reduced that response to the aversive sim- stimulation. And that's great if you think about what you want an antidepressant to do. It blocks the unpleasant experience or the negativity. And that's probably how these drugs are working. But also, the flip side was it also reduced the response to reward. So it took away, even though subjectively no difference. So again, when you ask them after just seven days, yeah, I love chocolate, yeah, it's great, I'm eating the same amount, yeah, it's fine. But actually, in the brain, they started to look a little bit like the brain of a recovered depressed person. So there was reduced response to reward. And how we argued in the paper, we said, oh, well, that could be a mechanism by which um, patients report when they're on these types of drugs, they feel a flattening or a blunting effect. So it's not that they feel really sad anymore, but they just won't really feel anything uh, because everything has been kind of blunted. Um, So that was the first study that we did in relation to depression and pharmacology. So again, using this chocolate as a model, a way of just activating reward, we can then look at the effects of current treatments. And as a follow-up to that, so if you're all still awake, everybody okay? Um, As a follow-up to that then, at the University of Reading, we've just completed a study with a different antidepressant. So in fact, it's it's a drug that modulates dopamine and norepinephrine, which are as you all know about dopamine now, it's a drug or a neurotransmitter that's thought to be more involved in reward. It actually turns out it's probably more involved in the motivation for reward and it's not necessary for the actual experience of pleasure. That's more like the opiate system. But anyway, we're not going to that. So anyway, what we did is we took this drug, Propion. It's licensed in this country as an anti-smoking drug. Don't get that confused. It also has effects on the nicotine receptors, so that's a whole different way it works. But uh, it also modulates dopamine norepinephrine. It's licensed in the USA as an antidepressant, but not here. So we thought, let's put this into the model and see what happens. Maybe that won't have such detrimental effects on the reward system. Let's you know see what happens. So again, very similar. We used uh, seven days treatment in healthy people. And this time, we actually changed the task as well. Because, like I mentioned before, this idea that dopamine's involved in reward, that's true to a point. Basically, it's much more complicated than that. There's lots of neurotransmitters involved in reward, and also dopamine is involved in lots of things. Your movement, in learning about rewards, and you may have heard of prediction errors. So basically, dopamine fires when, when stuff happens in the environment that you didn't expect, and that's how you learn. Okay? And more and more research now is showing that actually dopamine is more interested in 
what's going to happen. So the excitement of something, the anticipation, the motivation, but not the actual experience of the pleasure itself. And that's, um, like I may have mentioned, that's more the opiate system. And so what we found was, oh, so what we did yeah. to test this, so not only did we want to know what does these different antidepressants do to reward, we also wanted to see if we could separate reward itself, start to separate reward. So not only the old task was they just passively viewed pictures of chocolate and tasted chocolate, the person didn't have to do anything. And this time we changed the task. We actually made the task very similar to what I did with monkeys. So this time, the humans, as I like to call them, had to, uh, had to actually press a button, like a bit like a lever, and they had to work for the chocolate this time. No more free chocolate. So this time, in the scanner, it was like, how much do you want it? You know, how much are you willing to work for it? And this should really tap in then to dopamine. This is what dopamine is supposed to be involved in. The actual experience of tasting it, maybe not so much. So that's what we did. We developed the task so they had, do I have to work? So they have to work to experience the chocolate. They also have to work to avoid the unpleasant. I won't go into all of that too much now, to be quite honest with you, because I don't know any much about it. And nobody really knows much about it. Um, there's not that much done in the human brain on avoiding aversive situations and what neurotransmitters are involved. Turns out it's probably dopamine. But uh, again, I'm not going to talk about it. So uh, we looked at the reward, and what we found is that uh, the propion, after seven days, unlike citalopram, did actually increase the brain's response to reward. And that's exactly what we expected to happen, yeah? And it was great, so very cool. And when, mostly though, when they are anticipating the reward, so when they have to, they see the cue, and they know immediately after that, I have to work for this, or I'm not going to get it. And uh, we got a bigger activation to the propion in the dopamine areas of the brain or in the reward areas of the brain. So very different from citalopram. And that paper is just um, under review at the minute. It's not published So um, that's nearly me done. I know it's a bit quick and a bit like whistle stop. But it's basically, I hope that what you've got a little flavor of is that the three things that I mentioned at the beginning is, you know, why do we want to understand <coughs> reward in the brain? Actually, it's really, really important to think about how we respond to positive information for all the different types of psychiatric disorders that are currently having problems with how they respond to positive and negative information in the environment. So maybe have no response to reward or an overactive response to negative information. Maybe you might remember how we measure that now. It used to be all in animals. We used to get um, wonderfully beautiful data that we have from animals mapping out the actual report, reward pathways, what um, neurotransmitters are involved. But now, with the advent of new neuroimaging techniques for humans, we can start to see actually in patients themselves how the reward response is perhaps uh, dysfunctional or problematic and how we can try to map that out and how we can start to think about new treatments. I only talked about pharmacological treatments tonight. I am a psychopharmacologist, that's my main area, but there are, again, we're, we're in collaboration with, with clinical psychologists who are also starting to think, well, maybe even our CBT isn't dedicated to reward responding. It's not really thinking about anecdotal and depression. It's all thinking about negative processing in depression. And maybe why people don't respond completely to psychological therapy or pharmacological is that the treatments aren't even really starting to think about let's upregulate the motivation or the lack of reward. And maybe that would keep the person from 
being vulnerable to future episodes of depression. And so hopefully with that, um, you'll get a little better understanding of what we do with chocolate. We're not interested in chocolate as a treatment, which I always get. Um, should I take chocolate for my disorder? No. Um, no. Yes. Okay. 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 You can do what you want with chocolate. But um, yeah. So that's it, basically. Uh, thank you very much for listening, and I take questions if you have any. Thank you. that, you're right, so there's two things. One, the studies that have already been done in depression 
where they have got uh, low feelings and they have got uh, anhedonia, so this inability to experience pleasure. Although they haven't been done with chocolate, they've been done with monetary reward, different types of reward, and there is a relationship, there is a correlation between the brain difference. So as the brain um, activity to reward goes down, the anhedonia goes up. Oh, yeah. So that is documented. So that is a relationship between subjective it's experience. Correlation uh, exactly, it's a correlation. So until you do longitudinal, like this man mentioned before, then then we still haven't really got to the bottom of it. So what you need to do is you and that's so that's the whole point of our work. We're doing the biomarker. We're trying to look at things before people get ill. It's not the whole picture, you're dead right, but it's the first part. And so what we need to, first of all, we see, is it a biomarker? Is it worth chasing up? Is there a biological difference? Yes. Next step. What do we do next? Longitudinal study. We get people with these biological differences, even though there's no subjective change, and will it predict future mood or subjective change? That's what we have to do. with the young people with depression and actually the at-risk group. The at-risk group that we fit in, we did get ventral differences in the younger sample, yeah. So that, uh, the problem is Gottlieb didn't use chocolate and he didn't use the same sort of task, so you're always a little bit wary of, of comparing yeah. across studies. But it looks like, yes, maybe when you use a younger sample that maybe you do get these, these differences. Um, and again, why didn't we get it in our older family history? Not only the resilience thing, but maybe we didn't have enough for the group. But there's, there's many reasons why we may not have got it. There. So, so that's the first bit. And then the second bit was about what was your second part of the question? Well, I was just wondering if you know, given younger subjects, if you're seeing this oh, the ventral yeah. striae yeah, yeah. as they get older, yeah. like, or maybe it hasn't happened. No. Maybe that's the study yeah. you're doing. Does it change? Yeah. yeah. Again, something you can look at with longitudinal studies. Longitudinal studies are awfully expensive and um, they're just not done enough. And uh, I think they're kind of the gold standard, really, for this type of thing. So, as far as I know, there's no studies looking at anhedonia reward in young people and how it, it, it plays out 10 years later in their brain. It definitely hasn't been done. But a little bit of good news, I think, is that as far as adolescent brain structure and functional changes, we do have a matched controls. So we have young people at the same age who who don't have high scores on depression or who don't have family history, and we still find this statistical difference in their brain's response to reward. So it can't be just the developmental aspect because we're always controlling for that. Make sense? So, so if you have a bunch of young people who've got a difference in how they respond to reward, reward, and you have age and gender match controls, so you have a bunch of young people who have at the same age, basically, but they don't have the reward difference, then it's less likely to be the developmental thing. So your question really should be about does the how does the adult brain's reward response differ from adolescence? 
we don't know. I think that's what I'm yeah. asking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I agree with you. Do yeah. make measure with your own yeah. study where you do the fMRI yeah. all the way through. Yeah. yeah. Um, you mentioned the bupronium increased the brain's response to reward. Yeah. Did you look to see what it did to the brain's processing of negative information? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what we find is, and it's a bit hard to get your head around at the minute, but I'll give you a go, is that because we changed the task, so the old task, they just got unpleasant things. And normally unpleasant things make certain parts of the brain more active, right? And when you give citalopram, the SSRI, serotonin drug, reduces it good. Because we changed the task, we no longer in this task have just the passive experience of unpleasant. What we have now is um, a cue that says you have to work to avoid, which is really another measure of motivation. And so what we found is propioin increased the brain's response to the cue for positive and negative. So it's not directly comparable, unfortunately, to my previous work. Does that make sense? So, but what we say in the paper, which is under review, what we say is that that's good because if you remember what I talked about at the beginning about why rewards and punishers are important in the environment, they help guide your decisions, make sure that you don't get into you know problems and things. If given propion, these dopaminergic drugs increases your response to motivation to enjoy rewards or go after rewards, but also increases your response to avoid unpleasant negative information, that that's probably good too. So we're saying it's all good. But unfortunately we can't compare it directly to the previous task. Yes? So when you explain from the other study in terms of that the older people are more likely to be resilient yes. to depression. I was just wondering, I don't think you followed that up and why that might, you know, why they might be resilient. I was just wondering how you might go about yeah. doing that. Um, if that's interesting. Yeah. interesting to study. Yeah, so, so we wouldn't know at this point why, what made that person who's got a family history of depression, who's at the same risk as, every, as somebody else with a family history of depression, why they didn't get it and somebody else did. We don't know the answer to that. But what I did mention was that we, we, we selected that sample and it's possible that because they were resilient we didn't get the same result as the younger group, right? But it would be still interesting to know is it that maybe the brain differences that we got, so we did get reduced response to reward in the older sample, is it that that only comes online when they're older? Is it something to do with the, again, your guess is as good as mine, environmental interactions, what is it, is it something about being an older teenager, what is it that makes those parts of the brain come online, and again that's where probably all the work that's been done in adolescent and the adolescent developing brain will, will impact upon that result, but to be fair we don't know, we don't know why um, some people who are at risk don't get depression and some people do. If anybody knows, <laughs> because I'd love to know, yeah, yeah. Um, I was just wondering, does um, chocolate craving get into the depression? And uh, is the self-medication, is chocolate, is that a myth? It's like, do you know what that's like? You know that program where the, the thing goes, wah, 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 that's kind of like, yeah, so I, what's that program, what's that program where it goes, with the all, with, with all QI, QI, yeah, 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 they always ask that question. <laughs> So yeah, uh, self-medication with chocolate, I knew it had to come up. Um, 
again, it's very, very mixed, the data. There's data that people who are depressed um, overeat. There's lots of data that say that people who are depressed undereat. And so I don't know uh, what the, what the truth. Again, if anybody has a better idea than me, for sure, lots of people I'm sure do, but like what the, the data is out there. So there's this idea about, yeah, you self-medicate with chocolate. Sure, you self-medicate with everything, don't you? Like your friends and, you know, your dog, if you've got one. Um, you know, you just, anything that you really like, you're going to take. But whether or not, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I don't think... Again, the fact that some people overeat when they're depressed and some people undereat, I think just answers that question. It's like it worked for some people, it doesn't work for other people, but it surely wouldn't work for severely depressed people. Mild, moderate depression, do whatever you can to feel better. It doesn't matter what it is. Yeah? Yes? I've got a question about chocolate, Frank. Um, could you have done your studies using, for example, sugar solutions yes. or something else? Yeah. Yeah, so, absolutely, yeah. So again, it's just a tool. So in the animal work, um, you normally, use, with, the, with a lot of the monkey work, you use like orange juice, something that's easy to deliver while you're uh, investigating reward. Something that's sweet and sugary that you know that's um, just inbuilt that people are going to go after. And it just, yeah, chocolate was just, and it, people just seem to like it more than orange juice. It's a bit universal. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't know why, but it's probably because it's sugary and fatty. But yeah, you could have used anything. People, there's a lot, in fact, some of the early work in depression and reward is all done in monetary rewards. So it's not done in tastes or anything. What we like about what we do is just primary reward, and, and sometimes it can cut out all the problems with decision making and all these abstract thoughts that you have about money. But um, the classic uh, reward studies done in depression in humans was all done with monetary reward. Yeah, so it doesn't matter what the reward is. We think it's better, but... It makes good headlines, too. Well, you know, yeah. There's always room left for me, you know. Yeah? I just wanted if you do any... Um, try to con control for other risk factors, because there must be more than two. certainly don't go into that amount of detail like what if you're from a city and stuff no but we go through and again these they the, again that's another whole evening about how studies are even run how you select samples whether what we're even doing is is in any way representative of the community but what we do for our studies is if we want people who have a family history of depression parent has to have depression for example and we we rule out any comorbid Disorder, so like we rule out panic attack, anxiety, um, and again, there could be somebody standing here right now who says that that's the wrong way to do it. That's not, you know, depression isn't like that. It's not a singular thing. But again, if you think about what we're interested in, we're interested in just the biological. It's a bit like, um, you know, trying to separate out all these other things. And so we go for kind of the purest, just depression and try and rule out all these other factors. And we do the same in our control group. So we make sure, we go through what's called a SCID 
structured clinical interview and you make sure that there's no history of eating disorders and all these other things, all these different medications, anything that could interact with the, the brain's responses. But for the future, I think once we get a better handle on what we're looking at and we get a better idea of what we're doing, you can start to include more people then and you start to know what all the different things mean. But for the first steps, it's better to try and keep it clean. But yeah. One, I wondered if there are genetic biomarkers uh, that make people at risk for depression, and secondly, what the implications of your research are for preventing the onset of depression or future episodes if people should be taking medicines that act on dopamine or exercise that have some effect. Uh, yeah, just what the implications are. Okay, so the first part are genetics. Ooh. Okay, so again, it wouldn't be my research area. Yeah? Anybody in the room? Step forward. Anybody? Anyone in the back there? <laughs> um, yeah, so again, it's very sort of controversial. I remember when I was in psychiatry at Oxford, and I don't know if any of you have heard of Marcus Monopo, good friend of ours, who studies this kind of thing. He does meta-analysis and all the studies that have tried to link um, depression with genes and what genes or, or groups of genes are related to depression. And when I was first in psychiatry, we used to always collect DNA, and we were really, um, really into it, and we thought we were going to... And then we went through a phase where, well, don't even bother, because it's just, it's never going to go anywhere. So I think it's really um, quite controversial at the minute what the genetic risk factors and stuff are for disorders like depression. There was a study by, is it Capsi, uh, in Science, who said that it was the serotonin, short allele, long allele, had higher risks for depression. And since that, it's never been replicated. The study's never been, and this was published in Science, and it kind of, it led to a lot of work being done on this type of serotonin genetics and depression. But it hasn't been repeated. So it's not something that I, I worry myself about. Um, Maybe genetics in relation to your inflammatory response and uh, how your cytokines and different things in part, different parts of your different parts of your body respond to situations might influence your risk for depression. That's another whole field, but um, no, I don't know much about what particular genes. And your second part was about what we should do. What the implications for prevention? Yeah. Again, it's a bit early to say what, what, what words I wouldn't like to say. Let's you know phone up the NHS and say let's start you know doing this. So what we need to do with our work. So our work's working towards the idea that reward is something that shouldn't be overlooked in depression. For example, it's as simple as that. And that maybe some of the treatments that we have aren't geared towards reward. And the next step is clinical trials. The next step is to start to look at both how drugs that affect different neurotransmitters play out in subtypes of reward. So we need to start subtyping people who have dominant features of anhedonia, with dominant features of anxiety, with dominant features of whatever these comorbidities exist, and then how do they respond to particular, there's like 30 types of antidepressants out there right now. When you go into the GP, he doesn't know what one to give you. He's going on a hunch. There's no empirical data to say what the GP, what antidepressant he should give you for your type of depression. They're all treated the same. So that's behind everything that we do. We're thinking about personalized medicine, we're thinking for the future, what type of depression do you have? Are there biological markers for it? Are there drugs that can be targeted to your depression, which is different from your depression? And that's that's the future though. We're not there yet. Yeah. In the future, how many decades do you think 
I mean, if you were in the MRC and I said to you, you know, if you give me all the money, it's about just doing the research, isn't it? It's like, I think we could do it now with already with the drugs that we have. We already have drugs that probably hit certain aspects of depression, but we don't have the data, so we don't have the empirical data for the clinician to decide which drug. So you find a lot of clinicians say, in my experience, this works for this person. But until there's been, you know, it's just statistics, until thousands of patients go through a clinical trial to show that this drug affects this type of depression first, um, we, we can't do it until that. But that's not that far away. I mean, we're, we, we, you know, we write grants to try and do this kind of thing, subtype depression based on reward. People have dominant features of reward problems versus dominant features of something else. And then from there, you would build on to, if you can subtype depression, start to look at how different treatments affect it. Let me just try something else first, sorry. Do you think there's any link between, between the personality type and depression at all? Have you experienced Yeah. Well, again, well documented, I think, um, and there's probably experts in this room. I think if the Asha over here would know more about that than me. Um, yeah, so there are links between scores on particular personality questionnaires. Um, for example, neuroticism, I think, is a high risk for depression. So there are. But again, what do you do with that information? You know, it's like start to try and look at, I would say, the neurobiology of it. Is it something we could target? Is there is it is it a separate type of depression? Is it early onset, late onset? What is it? What is it? How is it different? And then start to think about how you could tailor what treatments we have already for that. Does, does, uh, does chocolate itself mess with neurotransmitter systems in a way that orange juice? So orange juice does? No, it does uh, chocolate, having chocolate as the reward, yeah. does that mess with change neurotransmitter release in a way that, say, orange juice as the reward would Yeah. Uh, we think not. So again, we get, we get asked this quite a lot. Um, so there's lots of chemicals in chocolate, uh, psychoactive chemicals like caffeine and theobromine and lots of phenylene and all these different things are in there. But they're not in enough of a quantity to cross the, to affect your brain and therefore your behaviour. So you have to eat, I think it's, I can't even remember the number now, I did this years ago, tons and tons of chocolate. So you die first. Before, <laughs> yeah. Some of you probably wouldn't, but it, you would die first before it affects, you know, you, the way smoking, you know, a drug would. You have to have huge amounts. Huge point. I mean, there's, but, the, but it's a good point because people always think, you know, when you think about antidepressants being serotonergic, they modulate, they upregulate serotonin. So people think, well, bananas, right? Uh, mushrooms, you know, they've all got serotonin. And so people think, oh, I'll just eat a, a, a diet rich in those sorts of things and I'll be getting, I'll be balancing my serotonin. I mean, yeah, that's probably good for you in general, but there's no evidence that they upregulate serotonin. They have no, your, your diet is, you know, um, and actually, we know this from tryptophan depletion studies. So I don't know if you heard that. So tryptophan depletion is if you take a drink that's lacking, I try and get this right, lacking in certain amino acids, it can deplete your natural serotonin. It's transient, so it only lasts a few hours. 
And those studies done in healthy people doesn't affect their mood. So you can reduce serotonin in the system and it doesn't affect your mood. It only affects people who have had depression in the past. It's really interesting. So it's back to the star, or is it a real trait? Is serotonin really involved in uh, becoming depressed, or is it something that's affected after you've been depressed? But for sure, people always talk about, you'll see it all over the internet, eat this, eat this, to give your serotonin. It doesn't have any effect on your behavior. Hold on, Yes, sorry, just go for somebody who hasn't spoken it. Absolutely. And they'll come back to you. I'm desperate. My question was very similar okay. to the previous one. So should we treat chocolate as uh, something which should definitely trigger the reward function? or Because I know many people who doesn't love chocolate and I'm uh, thinking that whether there's something wrong about them. They're happy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
on brown. You don't like going right through the door, do you? Nobody does. But once you're out, you do start feeling a bit better. When you come back, you feel like, oh, I did that, that's great. Well done, me. So, yeah, it definitely could work for people with a moderate to mild depression. But for sure, people who are clinically depressed, who can't get out of bed, are not going to go for a run. So, so it's really interesting. This is, the, again, a lack of probably communication about the different types of depression and the severity of depression. And we use the word so commonly, everybody's depressed, aren't they, you know, all the time. But there's a big difference between mild and severe depression. And so for sure, again, if it works for you, great. But if it doesn't, then it could be because either depression is also, you know, feeling guilty, worthlessness. There's so many experiences um, that people feel when they're depressed that it's not just a lack of motivation. So there's all those factors that make them can't get, get up and go for a run or pull themselves together is what everybody says. So um, yeah, if it works for you, do it. But if not, it's probably, you know, you've got a more severe depression and then that's why more severe interventions are needed, unfortunately, yeah. Oh, sorry, yes, yes, last one. Sorry, sorry. You made a throwaway comment about halfway through the lecture that could probably be the basis of a whole other lecture. And if you tell me there's a book I can go and read in the lecture, you said, you talked to dopamine, and you said then something unexpected happens, and that's the basis of learning. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you talk a bit more about that? Is there work on this I can go and read? Yeah, so um, one from Schultz, who's uh, one of both uh, scientists at Cambridge, who discovered basically, I don't know, does anybody remember the year? Was it the 80s uh, or earlier? Uh, of how dopamine works. And basically, how dopamine works is it works mostly from unexpected events in the environment. So if there's chronically basic dopamine, so it's like just going along nicely, you know, dopamine, and then something unexpected happens and it goes, oh, like this. And so he, what he was doing is he was recording from dopamine neurons in the brain and animals, and he could sort of map how dopamine was related to learning. So these spikes in dopamine's activity was related to how the animal could learn from unexpected events, basically. And it's called the prediction error. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Details of our upcoming events can be found at our website, www.oxfordcybar.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Oxford Cybar and on Facebook, British Science Association Oxfordshire Branch.